it's hard to say it's an infringement on our liberties if we willingly surrender to it. Welcome to this episode of the Bread and Goods podcast. I'm speaking to Stephen Hamilton, who is assistant professor at George Washington University in Washington, D.C. Uh, hi, Steve. Nice to have you on. G'day, Brad. Thanks for having me. Yeah, Steve, um, we're going to be talking about Australia today. And the thing that has been in the in the news uh, 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 that most listeners of, of, of this podcast might remember is COVID policy, right? Mm. Uh, Australian COVID policy was very much unlike other liberal democratic countries, perhaps barring t- uh, Taiwan. Compared to the US and the and the UK and lots of Europe, it was far more stringent. You, your, your lockdowns were far more strict. Uh, travel restrictions most most famously were far more strict. You know, the Australian IPL players in India couldn't go back until they quarantined in Mauritius or something. So uh, what do you think of, of all of that? Is it really a t- totalitarian hellscape, as other people have said? <laughs> <laughs> That's very good. So I, I, I've been... Um... I share, I'm on a unity ticket with Claire Lehman uh, or Lemon, I think she pronounces it, of Quillette, who's an Australian um, writer, editor of that, founder of that publication. Uh, at, at being in Australia during the pandemic and being kind of totally bemused by the foreign coverage of Australia at this time and going, uh, you people don't understand us at all. Um, so I was in so I'm obviously from Australia. You can tell from my accent. Uh, I spent my whole life here and I went to the US in 2012 to start my PhD. At, at, so I lived in Michigan where I did my PhD in Ann Arbor. Not, not exactly representative of the US more broadly, but still a really interesting experience. And then we lived in Chicago for a little while and then we moved to Washington uh, where, where I'm a, uh, an academic. Um, and I think early 2020, uh, living my life as a happy academic uh, in, in Washington, not really thinking much about uh, global things or Australian politics or anything like that. And then, uh, as, as we all know, uh, a pandemic uh, broke out. And within a very short period of time, my, my wife is a pastry chef in Washington at a, at a restaurant there. She was shut down. My university went online. My daughter's school, she was in pre-K four. It shut down within a period of a week. <laughs> and there was a talk of uh, not being able to get out back to Australia. And we were planning on going back in the summer anyway. Uh, and, and we just had to make the snap decision in early 2020. Uh, what are we going to do? Uh, and we, so we got on a plane pretty much straight away, left everything. And, and flew back to Australia, thinking that we'd come back in eight weeks, you know, when the thing blew over. <laughs> right. Uh, and, and, and frankly, the day after we arrived, the border closed. So they, they shut the border to non-Australians. And then Australians returning after that point would have to enter two weeks of quarantine. So I think we had a week of like in-home quarantine when we came back, but that was it. After that, we, we, we basically closed the Australian border. So uh, it, it opened again about six months ago. Um, so for 18 months, the Australian border was closed. And I had the benefit of having lived in the US for quite a long time and then moved back to Australia during the pandemic. Um, so I'm, I'm watching a lot of Americans write about Australian 
policy and, and the experience thinking, well, I, I actually am living it right now and, and I don't I don't agree with some of this coverage. So to understand Australia's response to the pandemic, you kind of have to understand Australian culture, Australian history, right? The the sort of kind of people we are uh, and and how we behave. And when you when you when you think about the policy response in that context, it, it makes a lot more sense. And, and moreover, I would just say we can talk about the costs, right, of the of the policy response in Australia. We can have a long conversation about the costs, which I think is where much of the focus is. But you can't deny the benefits, which is that Australia has had extraordinarily low mortality rates, uh, extraordinarily high rates of economic growth, and its performance in a in a in a total sense across all measures uh, through the pandemic has been really top of the world, right? I mean, as, as, as good as you could possibly hope for. Uh, I think now our employment population ratio is back to above pre-pandemic levels. We have a 4% unemployment rate. We have, you know, just really very little labor market scarring, very minimal firm closures, and we have almost we have extremely low mortality rates. So when you look at it all, we can talk about the costs of in, in, you know achieving that outcome, but certainly the benefits are very clear. Uh, now Australia had a few natural advantages. I think, quite honestly, our geography is very helpful. <laughs> I mean, we could close the border quite easily, and we didn't need to really worry about you know it's very easy to enforce a border border closure in Australia because 100 of the the incoming travel is via the air and and it's very easy to enforce so that made it easier and then and then we had a system of hotel quarantine which you know wasn't perfect but mostly held up okay uh and then the other thing that we we did badly i think uh, partly as a consequence of some of those other policies being so effective is we were pretty slow on the vaccine uptake but once we got going we got to a very very high level of vaccination something like 95 percent of the population is vaccinated double vaccinated, now triple vaccinated. And as a result, when we opened the border and kind of went back to normal, we've experienced just very low mortality. So to, to my mind, looking at the policy response, it was kind of exactly what we needed to do, which was while the vaccines were in development, close the border, aim for a zero COVID strategy. When the vaccines are available, roll them out as quickly as possible. And when you get to a high rate of coverage, reopen live your normal life. And now we're experiencing, you know, COVID with a reasonably high um, incidence rate, but certainly nothing like what it would have been and what it was in other countries in early 2020. So again, focusing on the benefits only, I kind of see it as a job well done. Um, do you think even considering the costs, it was a job well done or like by how much does your estimate change? Well, it depends, right? So the, if, if you think of the aggregate cost, I think the cost is low in aggregate, right? Uh, in, in the sense that uh, we had lockdowns in some cities. So there's a few policy responses. One is the lockdowns, which we had. We certainly had lockdowns to enforce the COVID zero outcome. Uh, and there are, and, and there was quarantine, right, of, 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 of travelers. And, and we made it very difficult for people to come in and out. So a lot of people who couldn't visit their family at very, you know, difficult times, you know, if there was a death in the family or something like that. And so, so, there, so if we think about the aggregate cost across the country, I think it was very low, 
right? I mean, genuinely very low, just in an, in an aggregate sense, because the people who were affected by those specific policies, particularly the border closures, was a small portion of the whole population. And then looking at the uh, lockdowns, you know, people in Melbourne talk about the longest lockdown in the world, but you know, if you actually think in practical terms, compare the Melbourne lockdown to say the London, London experience of the pandemic. And I talked to friends who lived in London. I think their experience was actually a lot worse in the sense that there was sort of a off on, off on, you know, quasi lockdown, just a, a, a really terrible kind of prolonged period, at least in Australia, when we, when we went for a lockdown, we did it properly and, and solved the problem, got to COVID zero and then could resume normal even then, on a whole, Australian waters have accepted a higher ratio of COVID suppression to letting, co letting COVID run policies. What explains that? Yeah, so I think there's a few things. Um, oh, well, look, it's complicated. So no one knows the answer to any, any of these questions, <laughs> to be honest. But well, look, you, can, you can point to a few things. So one is... Uh, I think Australians, so this is, the, this is the confusing thing for foreigners, I think. Uh, foreigners think of us as a nation of convicts uh, because of our you know, history. Uh, the, the history of white Australia is one of a, a convict, a penal colony, right? Um, and so people think of Australians as these convict larrikins, you know, outlaws, Ned Kelly, radical, don't follow rules. You know, that's, the, the, that's our image of in the world. Uh, and, and, and something that people said during the pandemic was we're not a country of convicts. We're a country of prison guards. Now, that's perhaps a little too extreme. <laughs> but when you look across our policies, policy outcomes, including COVID, but also things like our immigration uh, system uh, or even just law enforcement, we are a we are a nation that uh, we're, we're a nation of rule followers, mostly, um, and and we and we're we're a nation who feels of people who feel indignant when other people don't follow the rules, right? So there's a very classic cultural thing in Australia around, uh, you know, it, uh, boat arrivals. Of, of 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 asylum seekers it's a really fraught political history for the past 20 years on on what to do about asylum seekers australia has an extremely tough program of preventing asylum seekers by coming by boat the reason i think that that's politically popular that very tough enforcement which is now bipartisan is is, is mostly around this notion that australians have of not liking queue jumpers we think, oh, they're jumping the queue. They're not following the rules. That's not fair, right? That's not fair on the people who are following the rules. Now, whether that's right or wrong, and I think a lot of people listening would say, oh, that's not actually true. The point is that's the perception. And that's how Australians feel. And so mostly through COVID, Australians didn't, I mean, the vast, I would say the median Australian or the modal Australian didn't really mind about the restrictions. Right, they they thought let's do what needs to be done. They followed the rules, and they didn't complain, and it worked. Right, um, there's lots of other examples. So Australia has extremely uh, stringent and aggressively enforced speed limits. For example, like we have very very insanely low speed limits relative to other countries, and those speed limits are very aggressively enforced by speed cameras. Oh. 
everywhere, for example. Give me an example. In Singapore, on highways, it's 90. On a normal road, it's 40 or 50. Uh, yeah, it's similar to that. Hour. Yeah. But, I mean, I'm thinking of my, my obvious reference point. Okay, no no Australian. All right. Yeah, no Australian road is more than 110. Miles an which hour? Which I guess it's a... Yes. Uh, no, no. <laughs> kilometers an hour, yeah. 110 <laughs> kilometers an hour, yeah, no, which, no, is, no. which is, I guess, 70 miles, whereas... Okay, okay. My experience of driving in Australia, and these are big four, like eight lane highways mm-hmm. with v- very good safety, very smooth, very, you know, mm-hmm. good visibility. Uh, you know, Europe is much higher. And and and, and my experience of American roads <laughs> where people travel, if you're traveling below 80 miles an hour, it's like, what are you doing? <laughs> Get over. Uh, so, so the, but the point is the enforcement is extremely aggressive, right? So, and we support this. It's, it's po- popular. I mean, I find the notion of these aggressively enforced speed limits a little strange, but people like it. That's why the government does it. So I think for a start, at, at whether whether right or wrong, I think other 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 people from other countries, particularly the US, uh, I think they should look at Australia and, and understand the context of this, right? Which is, it's hard to say it's an infringement on our liberties if we willingly surrender to it. Right, it's it's a hard, <laughs> it's a difficult thing to criticize or, or call a, an authoritarian hellscape when people say yes, you know, please constrain me. <laughs> when an elected authoritarian hellscape. <laughs> yes, exactly, and and it's popular, right? So mm-hmm. I think if you look at our COVID policies, as aggressive as they were, they are wildly popular, and mm-hmm. that's why they did it, and that's why they got bipartisan support. Um, mm. So, and again, you can, it, it's costly in some sense, but, but we can also have a long, which, which maybe no is not the time for, we can have a long conversation about whether these uh, policies really are costly in the sense that, you know, I think one thing that lockdowns in particular did very effectively, at least in Australia, is there, they solve a coordination problem. Right. So if you, if you, you, you know, there's exponential spread and you've got agents in the economy doing what they want to do, what they really all need is they need to coordinate around something. And by, by generating a lockdown for a sharp, short, sharp period of time to, to drive cases to zero with the border controls in place, it actually led to less economic dislocation, I would mm-hmm. argue. So, so in that sense, it wasn't costly because the alternative isn't no restrictions and uh, no deaths and, and a great economy like that, that, that world was not available to us. Mm-hmm. I think among the bad options, we chose a very stringent COVID policy that, that I think in hindsight generated pretty good outcomes. So mm-hmm. I, you know, we could quibble about the details, but overall, I think as a society, in terms of our state capacity, in terms of our culture, all of that combined, I think, generated an outcome, which is among the kind of most enviable in the world. Sure. Um, there's an election coming in Australia, May 25th, if my memory serves right. What are the listeners who don't know, what are the major economic issues or, or actually what are the broader issues being debated by the Liberal and uh, Labour Party? For Again, uh, side note, Australia's Conservative Party is called the Liberal Party for historical yeah. reasons. <laughs> um, but yeah, every time somebody says Liberal in Australia, it's Conservative. Indeed. So so it's actually two weeks from today. It's Well, we're recording on the 7th and it's on the, so it's on the 21st. Um, 
and Australia has a three-year election cycle. Uh, we have a parliamentary system. So uh, it, it's somewhat like the UK. I think a system of government was certainly modelled on the Westminster system, but we have a directly elected upper house called the Senate, which is a bit more like the US in the sense that uh, the 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 Senate is the state's house. So uh, each state of Australia gets a, and we have only have a small number of states because we're a reasonably small, small country in population terms, uh, the, the states each elect senators at the same election. They each get a quota of senators and they're equally divided other than smaller states have fewer a couple of the smaller states have fewer senators and so in a sense the senate provides in a bit like in 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 a bit of the same way as the us the senate provides a kind of geographic bias away from density right the less uh, populated states have the same representation in the senate as the more populous states but the house of representatives the lower house is uh what will we have an independent electoral commission so there's no gerrymandering uh and it's they're equal populations and they the, the borders get redrawn to keep the population in each electorate roughly even uh and we have a mostly two-party system we have preferential voting so uh a compulsory preferential voting so you have to you have to maybe there's seven candidates in your elect in your local electorate you vote for those candidates in order there's a process of preferential allocation where you have this sort of runoff system where the bottom they start at the the least votes and they knock people off and then the preferences of those uh, ballots that went to those people then get allocated to people in the higher uh higher rungs until all of the people are eliminated except the top two um then the then because we have a parliamentary system, whoever, uh, whichever party gains the most seats in the lower house forms government. Most of the time it's a majority, which is 76 uh, seats. And, and occasionally we have a minority government because there are enough crossbench MPs, independents or minor parties that no, no party can get an absolute majority and then they have to form a coalition. And that, that happened in... 20, um, 2010, for example. So that's what we are right now. We have an election. Now, the, the Australian political system is kind of interesting. You're, you're right in the sense that we have a, a right-wing party called the Liberal Party. Um, that's liberal. I think America is an outlier in this sense. Liberal everywhere else except America means freedom. <laughs> well, I guess it depends on what kind of freedom, economic or social, right? So uh I think Australia is socially very progressive country, certainly relative to the US. We have much lower rates of, uh, of religious attendance, for example. We're, we're generally more progressive, I think, than the US. S social issues tend not to be quite as divisive here, though, though we have our own issues. Uh, most of the political division, it comes down to sort of economic policy. So the, the main left-wing party is the Labor Party, similar to the UK. Uh, it has a trade union base, uh, similar to the Democratic Party. Uh, and, and then the Liberal Party is the sort of traditionally conservative, but also libertarian and traditionally big business focused uh, inner city wealthy kind of coalition 
but over time has become more urban, rural, uh, in, in, in actually the same way that the GOP has moved over time in the US. Um, the, the Labor Party has a similar division in that it's a, it's a coalition between inner city progressives and blue collar working class kind of people. So both main parties have these sort of con internal conflicts between moderates and conservatives in different dimensions. Uh, we also have a Green Party, which, which gets about 10% of, of the vote. Um, and, and they have sort of stripped some progressives off the left end of the Labor Party. Um, so you end up with most of the time a contest between the Liberals and the Labor um, in most seats. And that's the case now. So we've had a, a, a conservative government since 2013. I worked in government uh, between 2010 and 2012. And that was a when I when I joined government, the uh, the Labor Party had only been in for three years after a very long conservative government John under John Howard for over a decade. Uh, the Labor Party came in and they tried to do lots of things, um, including a carbon pricing scheme, deal with the climate change issue in Australia. Very, very fraught issue. Uh, I, I joined government when this was being kind of considered. It caused a lot of political uh, tension and conflict in Australia within the parties and across parties. Uh, the 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 issue essentially led to the prime minister being replaced by his deputy uh, Julie Gillard, uh, and that can happen because it's a parliamentary system, right? We don't directly elect the the leader of the country, uh, and and then what happened after that was uh, they they came into minority government. So she replaced him. They went to election, and and they almost lost government. They formed a minority government using the support of independents and, and Greens, and then they tried to legislate the carbon price, which they did do, uh, a kind of an emissions trading scheme covering most of Australian industry. And then the opposition led a very aggressive anti-carbon tax you know, drive, and it was very, very intense. <laughs> they tried to do it in 2010. They did it again in 2013. That led to the fall of the government that I had worked on the development of that carbon price, the government fell. The first item of business of the opposition when they came to government, the conservative uh, government, was to rescind the carbon tax. And then we more or less had very limited climate action between, you know, 2013 and today. And now we have what looks to be the, co the, the conservative government looks to be about to lose government. And the opposition, again, Labor has come up with a more progressive climate policy, including what is effectively an emissions trading scheme, again, <laughs> to solve this problem. But because the country has moved you know, significantly to the left on, on climate issues, it looks like that will probably get up and stay up. And maybe that issue will be, will be dealt with permanent, you know, once and for all. Uh, depending on the outcome of the election. So most of the, the strange situation we have is, you know, Australian politics is very much about, um, it's hard to say for sure, but the sense you get is that in Australia, Australians don't like to switch. We, we don't have changes of government very often. We don't have term limits, but we, we tend to have governments that are in for a long time. And most of the time governments get voted out rather than in. 
So if people are satisfied with the way the government's handling things, they get the vote. If they're not, they vote for the other guy, right? And that's that looks to be about what's to what, what will happen in a couple of weeks' time, I think, because the current prime minister is extremely unpopular, you know, according to the polls. Um, he, uh, I read a news somewhere that 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 he went uh, at a at a meeting of Pacific Island states. He went and took a lump of coal or something, and you know, uh, climate change is a serious. Um, is, uh, is, a, is a contentious issue, partially because you have a large coal mining sector. The, the meme on financial Twitter goes is that Australia is a, is a, is a mine with a parliament, you know, and I, I, yeah. I, 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 I find that to be really false, but, but you know, all your, all your exports are those are commodities. And um, a question I've, worried, I've, I've wondered is that why doesn't Australia have a more globally competitive service sector? You have a lot of the um, inputs, right? You have a very strong human capital base. Australian universities are uh, quite uh, are quite good. You have um, uh, and you know an, an English speaking population, obviously, and you have uh, high levels of income and a market large enough to to support some base level. So why doesn't Australia have more service ex- uh, exports and less of these commodities? What a good question. Uh, it's a complex question, but what I'll say a few things. Uh, you, you're very astute saying that we're a mine <laughs> because that's right. We are, I think, the world's largest iron ore exporter um, and I think the largest exporter of thermal coal, uh, sorry, metallurgical coal. Um, we have massive export. We have uranium. We have bauxite for aluminium, you know, copper. We are a gigantic mine at the bottom of the world, right? <laughs> There's no doubt about that. And in fact, Australia's history is characterized by natural resource abundance. That's a, that's a, that's a critical part of understanding Australia, a culture, a political system, is, is our economy, is that natural resource base. So even if you go back to the mid 20th century, we were one of the world's largest wool exporters. Right, so we, we, there was no, there was some mining, but it, it wasn't, you know, it, it wasn't as dominant as it, as it is today. But we were a massive exporter of wool, which is, you know, an agricultural product. Uh, at earlier times, we were, we had a, we had a very significant gold rush during the 1800s, for example, and then this latest mining boom started in the sort of um, 2005 or so. Um, the, this latest boom, highly correlated with China's economic development, right? So uh, there is a very famous book um, that a lot of foreigners might not know about. Um, it's sort of notorious. Well, it's, it's misused. So you're, what you'll often hear is Australians say, Australians most in, in common usage misuse this phrase. They say, Australia is the lucky country. And we say it with almost a degree of pride, like, Oh, we're so lucky, right? But the the phrase actually comes from an author, uh, Donald Horn. He wrote a book called The Lucky Country. And this is in, uh, I think it was in the 60s um, that he wrote this. But the quote is- 1964, yeah. Yes. uh, The quote is, Australia is a lucky country run mainly by second-rate people who share its luck. It lives on other people's ideas. And although its ordinary people are adaptable, most of its leaders in all fields so lack curiosity about the events that surround them that they are often taken by surprise. 
<laughs> so, so this is the story. Uh, this is Australia, the lucky country, right? And, and, and look, I, the, the quote is misused, but there is a, there is a deep element of truth there. Um, I, I think Australian history is significantly um, characterized by a kind of resource curse, right? Like a Dutch disease kind of thing. Um, because we have these very valuable resources, and have always had them at all, at all points of our life. Uh, I think it has led to us focusing on those things and at the expense of other things. So the, the, if you compare the US and Australia in terms of college attendance, what proportion of the population has attended college? Uh, you know, Australia is decades and decades behind the US. I mean, it only became a common thing for Australians to attend college in the 90s. Um, you know, Paul Keating, who was the Australian Prime Minister up until 1996, right, which is not that long ago, had never finished high school, right? The Prime Minister of the country had never had 10 years of schooling. And that's not weird. So when I moved to the U, when I moved to the US, I hear this uh, tag people use as being first gen. And I always thought first gen, what is this first gen thing? Uh, and someone told me, oh, it means my parents didn't go to college. And I'm like, did anyone's parents go to college? <laughs> my, my parents didn't go to college. My, my, my mother didn't finish high school. She had seven children in her household and there was a, they, they could only afford one to go to year 12. And she wasn't the lucky one. And so she didn't finish year 12. And that's not unusual. That's common. You know, CEOs of big Australian companies didn't go to university. So Australia it hasn't got that kind of deep culture of education that a lot of other countries have, for example. It's only a recent thing. Uh, we also have, I mean, I, I mean, I love Australia and a lot of the friends and colleagues I have in the US, they remark of me, Stephen never shuts up about how amazing Australia is. <laughs> so I want to provide a balanced view, but I think it is part of Australian culture to be deeply anti-intellectual. And certainly my upbringing, living in a regional area in a, in, a, in a working class state, was characterized by a sort of anti-intellectualism. Why would you want to go to uni? You know, go do a trade or something. You don't want to be the smartest kid in the class. That's, that's sort of embarrassing or almost shameful, right? And, and the only high status jobs in that intellectual class are, are high class services like law and medicine, right? Lawyers and, med and doctors, they're okay, but that's the only kind of smart thing that's, that's sort of broadly acceptable to, to, to the sort of average Australian. So I think this, this, this is deep thing. It's very slow to change. It's very difficult to change. It's not obvious how we should address it. And, uh, and it's only something I think that will change with time. But in some sense, I do think it holds us back. Another good example is, you know, I, I, I'm in the US, I'm a professor there. When I go to a dinner party in Washington, DC, and I tell people I'm an academic, they go, oh, and, and they want to talk to me, right? I have status <laughs> in Washington. I have status. I'm like, what? In Australia, get, an academic is like- Invited to podcasts. Yeah, exactly. In <laughs> Australia, it's like, why would you do that? Why, why, why would you want to be an academic? God. Or, you know, oh, well, you've never left school your entire life. Well, that's a bit weird. Why, you know, you're, you know, you're a teacher. Now, there's nothing wrong with being a teacher, but there is something different to being academic than being a teacher, right? There's the research component, which is critical. So that's a pervasive characteristic in Australia. 
And despite the fact that, you know, our university sector has grown a lot since that switch happened in the 90s, I think there's a huge amount of path dependence. There's a real cultural barrier, I think, to to that. And again, our economic circumstances, which endow us with these incredible natural resources, uh, and that those natural resources have a lot of implications, right, in terms of economic growth, they genuinely mean you don't need to worry so much about the other things because our prosperity is ensured. Uh, because of that, we've never really been forced to develop other industries in a way that is, um, in a way that is critical and sustainable, right? And, and genuinely something that the people of the country feel is valuable, right? So I think, I think policy can help there. There's certainly things we should be doing to try and get ourselves, wean ourselves off some of those uh, traditional industries, but there's only so much you can do at the margin and it, and it takes a lot of time. Australia isn't the worst example of the resource curse, right? You have countries in Africa which basically never developed any sort of governing right. mechanism because the, uh, you know, the spoils of the loot were so high that it was much more efficient to just take it and, you know, store it in Switzerland uh, instead. Um, on the other hand, Australia does have a, a, a fairly well developed, actually among the world's best developed democracies, a mm. large enough banking sector, probably uh, some people say too big, but a large enough banking se sector. You have a quickly growing startup scene, you know, Atlassian and, uh, and Figma came from Australia. So um, what explains that you're... No, definitely worse than the than than the US and the UK on the resource, but, but that's because they don't have resources. Mm. But definitely better than 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 most countries which do have resources. Look, I can't remember the exact statistic because we're just doing this on the fly. Uh, if I if I could Google it, I could find. But my 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 recollection is that Australia around around a hundred years ago, certainly one hundred and fifty years ago we may have had the highest per capita income in the world, or at least it was among, it was very close to the highest per capita income in the world. Uh, and so over the, over time, we've been overtaken by other countries. I mean, that's, that's kind of interesting, right? Given our natural resource endowments, it doesn't really make a lot of sense. Um, but that's reversed particularly with mining since the early two thousands and our per capita income has increased radically in that time, right? Since the, since the early 2000s. But again, that's mostly resource driven. Um, and, you know, it's fine. I mean, there's nothing wrong with benefiting from natural resources. That's great. I mean, if we can have lower taxes on other factors, uh, if we can have a, you know, uh, very cheap imports, like all, all sorts of benefits come from um, from a, 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 a resource curse is partly <laughs> the opposite, right? So this is good. The question is simply, the reason it's a resource curse is the question is what happens beyond the resource boom. Uh, and certainly at the moment, people are very concerned that the, the, the China it's, it's significantly driven by Chinese construction, which is something that looks to have been a bubble. And, you know, every single block of concrete can contains steel, which contains Australian iron ore. So that's where that's where the <laughs> that's where the national income is coming from. So if that is a bubble and that does collapse in the way that some people worry, that could mean very negative things for for Australia's economy over the over the coming period. And then what you worry about is just that other industries suffered. Uh, now I think there's 
I think a good, you could point to um, educational outcomes, for example, we have very poor educational outcomes relative to say European countries at, you know, the primary and high school level. Um, I think we, you know, if I compare, I mean, you say the startup scene, but it's, 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 it's not very deep, you know, like there are a few stars, but it's not very deep. It doesn't have the kind of depth of other, other places. And I think in general, we don't, we don't have a domestic manufacturing industry to speak of It's pretty minor. Um, and we only have a few, we have, we have a lot of, uh, concentration in a lot of industries. We have, um, you know, we have a large education sector. We have, uh, a reasonable finance sector but you know it's not it's not it's not a it's not a it's not the economy that it's not an economy that's as complex as what you might expect in a country of our income per capita put it that way now some of that is to do with the fact that australia is tiny so this is the other thing people sometimes forget we, we have uh roughly the land mass of i think the u.s um we are a huge to like geographically huge country and we have 25 million people and you know that's very <laughs> that's a very small population so so some of these economic characteristics simply are a scale issue right we, we don't have the agglomeration benefits of some of some of these larger countries and that's one reason why i kind of um favor a significant increase in immigration and, and a larger population in Australia, because I think we could benefit from some of these agglomeration benefits, including more competition in a lot of markets, for example. Um, but I think anyway, the, the, the bottom line I think is Australia does have good institutions, many of which it, it simply imported from the UK, you know, because that's, that's, that's from where we were colonized. Uh, and, and, and they have stood us, well, and you're right, we have a well-functioning democracy. A lot of that comes down to our system of government, which I think is partly luck, but you know, I think it, it benefits us significantly in terms of the way our political system functions. We, we, we have a lot fewer barriers than other countries to uh, government, which I know a lot of Americans won't like, right? Because a lot of Americans enjoy the, the, the checks and balances. We have many fewer barriers and it means we can achieve reforms in many areas more readily than the US, for example. Um, and a lot of these problems which have been uh, which have been barriers in which have faced barriers in the US just don't face the same barriers in Australia, for example. So uh, just you, you see this every day in so many in so many areas, uh, certain certain policy areas or things like, I mean, I don't know, I'm thinking of doing your taxes, for example, uh, <laughs> which in the US, you know, there's a law that says, uh, there's a law that says like, or well, there was a law that says TurboTax, you know, uh, the government can't compete with TurboTax, for example, to do your taxes. And it creates a whole lot of nightmares at tax time. In Australia, the government just does it, right? Now, some people would like, like the fact that the government is prevented from operating in that market. I happen to think actually it's pretty good. It's something the government should do. Um, so yeah. I think in a lot of ways, our, our, our society is very, very amenable. It's very high functioning, but I, but I, but what I think about is what's our potential, right? What, what could we achieve with, with the natural resources and endowments we have. And in many areas, I kind of feel a little bit disappointed. 
Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, a question a, a teacher in school asked me was, why isn't Australia a superpower? And I'm like, no, they can't be. And then the, the teacher's like, no, they're pretty big. They've, they've uh, you know, they've got a, a lot of this, um, you know, they, they've got all the endowments necessary. And I've always remained uh, puzzled. I mean, puzzled about that. Well, I think more of it, I think the answer becomes A, the resource course and B, uh, the fact that Australia is one of the countries that could have very high levels of, of immigration, but has, you know, it, it, it has high levels of, of immigration, but definitely not as high as you would, ex- yes, as, right. as, as, you know, would be needed to turn it in, in, into the next America. So um, yes. what explains the, is it just gen- the same level of anti, of anti high level of, uh, you know, anti super Im- immigration bias that that hmm. that is present uh, around the world, or is Australia unique in 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 that sense? It's certainly not. I mean, uh, look, population is the answer there. <laughs> You're right to diagnose it that way. The reason Australia is not a superpower is because we have 25 million people. Right? We have, you know, again, the landmass of the US with half the population of the UK. Right? We we it's. We're, we're and we're, you know we're at the bottom of the earth right so um and and that that i mean population is everything if we had a population 10 times as great as what we have we would be a superpower but we don't right so the question is why don't we well we do have very high rates of population growth actually um but it takes a really long time to generate a really large population even with rapid rates of population growth um and it's mostly immigration driven. So we have a very, we have a large immigrant population, a a significant portion of Australians were born overseas. So it's not driven by like natalism. It's driven by immigration, but there is, there are limits. So um, I think our immigration rate is around for a 25 million population. I think it's around 200,000 a year. So it's, I'd happily see it double, for example, quite, quite easily, but there are political barriers to that. Now, there's a few issues. One is, uh, look, Australians, the, the, the conservative government under John Howard between 1996 and 2007 oversaw very large immigration by historical standards into Australia. And that immigration came from not necessarily just from white countries, it came from all over, right? We have a large Indian immigration, large Chinese immigration, right? Other parts of Asia. Um, and, and mostly that immigration didn't cause any problems, right? It, it was fine. I mean, there was no, there was no, you know, it was at a rate that might, that no one noticed in a sense, right? Um, and it generated, it's part of the reason why we had a, rapidly growing economy through that through that period uh but there is a concern and i don't know if this is well placed but there's a concern among some people that a high rate of immigration a significant increase in the rate of immigration would generate resistance political resistance either because of racial animosity or because of bottlenecks you know a lack of infrastructure you know the 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 carrying capacity of the economy couldn't keep up with that level of, of immigration over time. I'm skeptical of that, but that's the claim, right? That's, that's the claim that, that people make for the reason we couldn't pretty rapidly increase Australia. I'm skeptical, but, um, but, but I think politically speaking, that's the barrier.
is this the highest you know the the rate of, of, of migration we saw under the liberal government is that the highest uh politically feasible or can we have Brian Kaplan-esque open borders? Not open borders, but you know. No chance. No, no chance. chance. No chance. I mean, just no way. I mean, it, look, uh, what I would like, like, I think the, fo- I mean, I'm a pragmatic person. Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't, I don't actually agree with open borders, to be quite honest with you. And, and that's a long conversation. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I'm a little bit like um, Angus Deaton. I don't know if you've mm-hmm. heard Angus mm-hmm. Deaton's I, views I, on nationalism. I, um, no, I have that now. Yeah, so I mean, Angus Deaton is Scottish. I have Scottish heritage myself. Uh, mm. Scott Scots tend to be a pretty parochial bunch, <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> and Angus Deaton has those qualities. There is something to be said for national. For, for I mean, nationalism is is a word which is has lots of interpretations. Many like most of which are negative, right? I mean, mm. uh, for for obvious historical reasons. But there's something to be said for nationalism, right? I think there is some value in some coherent national identity for all sorts of reasons. I don't think it's actually crazy to say that. Um, so I sort of sit in the middle where I, where I would like, I think a, a, a national identity has some value in, mm-hmm. in various ways, but at the same time, I think our national identity could withstand significantly more immigration, right? Mm-hmm. So again, I would double it without any qualms. And in particular, I would significantly increase. So the one area we fall down on consistently is humanitarian intake. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, multiply our humanitarian intake by five and it still wouldn't be a fifth of what it is in some European countries, right? So the movement of refugees in, in, in Europe has created some political tensions, right? And what you worry about is that there'll be some kind of political backlash against that, those, uh, those movements. And so you worry that that will threaten the long run trajectory of your immigration program. I don't think we're even a tenth of the way to that point in Australia. So, I, so that's, that's kind of the area where I think we could make big gains. And again, it's all about agglomeration. So you have, so you have, you know, I mean, I don't know if you know the work of work in urban economics, people like Ed Glazer, but, but I kind of have a. Uh, he and well, I, I, I forgot the second author, but like. Yeah. I mean, I, I think, look, I look at the, the, the agglomeration benefits claimed by, by these scholars and I, and I take them seriously. Mm-hmm. And I think we ought to think, we ought to think more broadly about those agglomeration benefits. So I talked a little bit before about Australia's uh, high degree of industry concentration we have two supermarkets. Mm. That's it, right? And we like two banks, banks, right? Yeah. Four banks, two supermarkets. We have about three kinds of beer, you know, <laughs> none of which are Forex. I want to just, uh, sorry, none of which are, um, what, do you, what do the Americans say? Fosters. Mm. Um, you know, we, we have a very high degree of industry concentration relative to other countries. We pay very high prices for lots of goods, right? If I compare the cost of imported vehicles in Australia with the same cars, literally the same cars from the same factories into the US, it's like wildly more expensive in Australia and it's not accounted for by shipping, right? It's, it's, it's purely fixed costs being spread less thinly raises the cost of living in Australia relative to the counterfactual. Um, and I think part of that, that, that dynamism that we could, we could use, right, economic dynamism that we could use, the innovation and other things, I think would come from, from that agglomeration. So 
yeah, it, it's radical to say in Australia, it's sort of politically unpopular, but uh, the Prime Minister Kevin Rudd uh, in, I think, 2007 deigned to say that he, he, he liked the idea of a quote-unquote big Australia when that big Australia was really just a rapid but not extreme rate of population growth. And then he was forced to rescind it. And when Julie Gillard took over, she said, I don't believe in a big Australia. I believe in a quote unquote sustainable Australia, right? So, so I think the political barriers to that are, are significant. But I think if I look past the resource boom, for example, and I think what if we're in a world where, uh, you know, physical investment is much less important and therefore the demand for our, 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 our commodity exports is less significant. I think population growth and agglomeration is one way out for us, right? One possibility for driving economic growth beyond, beyond that. Um, what do you do outside of work? What are your, your, your hobbies? <laughs> well, yeah, so I, I have, uh, I've been on Australia the past two years and it was not intended. It was meant to be two months and it turned into two years <laughs> because of the pandemic. So I, I came back here with my family, my, my wife and my daughter, who at that point was, I guess she was four. Um, and this is where I'm from. I'm in my hometown in, in Queensland, Australia. And we were initially teaching online, so it was fine. I mean, we, we were mostly surviving. And then the pandemic kept stringing along way, way beyond what anyone expected. And, uh, and, and then we had another baby. So <laughs> that was also unexpected. Uh, we had our first daughter in the US away from family and family support. And so when we moved back here uh, with family around, it makes just a tremendous difference. So we now have a, a daughter who's 10, 10 months old uh, and we're due to head back to the US uh, later this year uh, for the fall semester. So I'll be back there now. So what I've been doing in Australia is just enjoying Australian lifestyle. So it's an incredible country. I mean, really, the I've been doing a lot of complaining today about Australia, but there is something wonderful when you visit about Australian culture, which is that the, the flip side of the resource curse is actually that people tend to be very easygoing. You know, there is a, there is a, one thing I noticed about the U S is there's a very intensive uh, almost religion around working. Like anytime anyone talks about anything, it's in reference to work, right? What are they doing at work? You know, where do you work? You know, work, 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 work. Australia is a bit more like Europe in the sense that we don't care that much about work, or at least the average person doesn't, right? They, they, they can't wait to get off work so they can go surfing or something. So, so being in Australia, it's been a really nice to kind of reconnect with the easygoing ways of Australia. We have amazing food here. We just truly incredible food with, you know, where, where a lot of the US has sort of influences from Mexico and South America. Australia has many influences from Southeast Asia. So you'll find among the best Thai food in the world here, for example, it's extraordinary. We also have an incredible coffee culture because Melbourne, which is our kind of coffee center, had, had a, a very significant Italian immigration through the 20th century. And, 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 and the, so the Melburnians have taken up coffee like a religion down there. So we have just extraordinarily good coffee uh, and, you know, an amazing climate. I mean, the climate is just incredible. So, uh, so I've been sort of swimming a lot. The ocean is about 10 minutes away. I swim 1,500 meters three times a week and I love it. It's 
uh, I, I started that during the pandemic and it's among the most enriching experiences, right? There's a, a, a solitary nature of being in the pool, looking down at that stripe on the bottom of the pool with no headphones in and just the water going swish, swish, right? It's almost meditative. So I love the swimming experience. Um, and the other thing that I was taught, we were chatting about earlier that I've taken up lately, and this is just a revelation to me, is the uh, is something that uh, Scott, do you know Scott Cunningham? I don't know if you know uh, Scott Cunningham. Econometrics. Yeah, exactly. He's mm. a great dude. I I have deep affection for Scott Cunningham. Uh, he's in Texas and an econometrician. Um, he 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 was talking about intermittent fasting during the pandemic. Mm. And uh, I didn't know what it was. And then I discovered all intermittent fasting apparently is, is that you don't eat breakfast. Uh, <laughs> and, and I will tell you about just before the pandemic started, I, 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 I started not eating breakfast because I, I heard about this intermittent fasting thing and I haven't eaten breakfast in three years. And it, along with swimming, not eating breakfast is among the greatest revelations of my life. <laughs> It's one of those things where you go, how did, how did no one, how, what, how, how did I not know this before now? How, how was there, how is this not a universal thing that we've just, we just choose not to eat breakfast? I don't understand. I, I cut it out of my day. I save time. I guess you save money, whatever a bowl of cereal costs, but I feel less hungry and I feel more energetic. Uh, I feel less weighed down. I, I never eat before noon. So in terms of things that I've done in my personal life recently that I value, uh, intermittent fasting, I can't recommend highly enough. It's extraordinary. The poor call is giving a meal. <laughs> but it's re it's crazy, right? I, no, mean, no, I, no. I guess it's, I mean, I don't I, know if you've tried it. No, I have, I have. I, just, I, get, I get uncontrollably hungry by like noon and I'm like, okay. And then, then I overeat. I probably need to grow old. I, I mean, I don't care enough at this age. I, I, if I get fat, I'll <laughs> yeah, like... Yeah, you'll care. I mean, I'm only 35, but I will tell you now, <laughs> you may <laughs> care when you're my... So I, so I, I think it's individual specific. So mm. my wife swears by the fact that she could never do it, right? Mm. Um, because any amount of... Like, she just gets hungry constantly. Mm. Whereas okay. me, quite honestly, I don't eat between, say, 6 p.m. and noon... And I don't miss it. Like it's currently 11.15. I had a coffee this morning. That's all I've had since like 6 p.m. last night. And I feel nothing. I don't feel hungry. I don't feel anything. And in fact, if I had eaten breakfast at like eight or something, I would be hungry by now. So, you know, it depends on your body. But for me, it's been a revelation. And, and that's like a weird thing, right? It's one of those examples where you follow these rules in your life every day that you never think about. They're just norms. Like your parents did it. So you do it. You go through your life. You never think about it again. And then somebody says to you, that thing is not necessary. <laughs> no. And then you cut it out and you go, Oh my God, it's so much better without it. Uh, so that's, so that's that. But the other thing, uh, Praju is that I have, yeah, I mean, we could talk for hours and hours and hours about mm. my my non-work interests, but we, mm. we don't have the time. Biohacking is severely underrated. But what, is it? what did you say? It's called biohacking. You basically make small changes to your 
party like the more extreme mm-hmm. ones you become you you put like you know you know those stories in the news of people putting chips in their skin or whatever but like simple mm. things you know uh very very your 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 diet um the, the more unscrupulous thing would be like go buy a bunch of those vitamin pills they sell and you know try to do it but yeah it's overall underrated by people and mostly because they don't care like if you ask me i'd be like yeah i i i'll buy about 20 years later but yeah but it's sort of like a rat i mean i guess we you, you must be the same everyone and in fact literally everybody listening to this podcast is also surely the same which is that we're kind of what my friends call model-based thinkers <laughs> there's normies over there <laughs> who don't think about things this way and then there's us all right which is um you know if i can if i can in every part of my life if i can optimize that's like that's my goal <laughs> no matter how small every single yeah, thing in my yeah, life yeah. is like a game of tetris <laughs> <laughs> and when you can cut out an entire meal and not only do you not lose anything but you gain something that's extraordinary right that's like that's like expanding the frontier of your life um, so i'm always after that stuff and i think the exercise is the same actually so i try and exercise a lot but only mainly because i find that if i if i swim in the pool for 30 minutes the productivity gain is much more than 30 minutes right? You actually, you, you feel so much more um, focused. Oh, I do anyway. I feel so much more focused mm-hmm. and I sleep less actually in a weird way. Like you feel more focused. You feel less kind of sort of, ugh. you know, you can, if you, if, if I'm really sedentary, I can feel quite, ugh. so most of it is just about optimization, right? Trying to find simple ways that make you feel better, mm-hmm. make you happier and make you more productive. Right. 